Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Mark Redman, who's the Executive Director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. He's also the author of The Goodness Within, Reaching Out to Troubled Teens with Love and Compassion. It was a Friday morning like any other, and Mark Redman was walking down Madison Avenue en route to another business meeting in New York City. Mark had found himself exactly where he and everyone else had always envisioned, living in New York City, working for a multi-billion dollar company with all the material fulfillment a young man could ask for. But later that same day, Mark would end up quitting his job. And only three days later, he would be starting his life as a live-in volunteer at the Covenant House, a nearby shelter serving homeless and at-risk youth. He had decided to trade in the fancy job with the fancy suit for jeans and sneakers and give away all his material possessions in exchange for what his heart had truly yearned for, emotional and spiritual fulfillment. By devoting his life to charity, generosity, and providing guidance to those in need, Mark had found his calling. Going on 40 years later from that fateful day, Mark says he never looks back on that decision with any regret. Today, he is the Executive Director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services, a shelter and recovery center based in Burlington, Vermont, whose mission is to empower teenagers, young adults, and their families to make and sustain positive changes through prevention, intervention, and life skills services. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, Mark and I discuss the difference between happiness and fulfillment, the nature of trauma and how it lives in the body, the importance of homeless shelters and recovery centers, and the scope of the services they offer, and how seemingly small acts of kindness can change a person's life. I truly enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Mark Redman, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, I bring you Mark Redman. Mark Redman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Bakdash. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Mark, and I'm really excited to be speaking with you to unpack your story and get your thoughts on the work that you do. But the way I like to start my conversations is by asking, in your own words, how do you define who you are? So I tell people um, I'm a male, age 63. Uh, I'm Caucasian and I'm married and I have two sons. I have an older son who uh, I'm very proud of me. He went back to nursing school at age 31. He is a registered nurse now who works with psychiatric patients. And he has two boys of his own. And uh, I have another son who's a senior in high school. And uh, my wife, I'm very proud of her. She ran for election to the Vermont legislature on an anti-gun uh, platform or a gun safety platform and won. So she's in the Vermont House of Representatives. And the other thing I am is I'm a Catholic, go to church every Sunday. I practice meditation and centering prayer and and yoga every day. And the work that I do is important to me. I run an organization that helps homeless and at-risk teenagers. So young people who literally, some of whom have literally nowhere to go, nowhere to live, and others who have dropped out of school, maybe they've committed a crime and they're in the juvenile justice system, Some of them suffer from mental health disorders. Some have uh, substance abuse difficulties. So kids who struggle, kids who are really struggling in a number of different ways. And the last thing I am is, Bakhtash, this is important. I'm a storyteller. 
I've become a storyteller like in the last four years. I've been on The Moth. I've been on public TV stations. So storytelling has been, in the last four years has become a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wonderful introduction. Really quickly, what is the name of the organization that you run? You haven't shared that with us yet. It's called Spectrum Youth and Family Services, and it's based in Burlington, Vermont. Right, right. And I think the most curious part about your story is that you didn't know that you were going to get into this role and do this kind of work when you were younger. Can you tell us how you got into the work that you're doing now? Tell us how you got into Spectrum Youth and Family Services and what that trajectory is like. So I have a very unusual path. It's funny. If you ask most people who do the kind of work that I do, they will tell you that they themselves had difficulties growing up. Maybe they struggled with substance abuse or they were a gang member and then they became an adult and wanted to do this work. That is not my story at all. I grew up in this upper middle class family on Long Island, you know, in the 60s. My dad was a business executive. I was the oldest of five kids. My mom was a housewife, went to Catholic school. There was maybe one youth of color in my entire grade school, maybe one or two in my high school. I went to uh, Villanova University. I studied business because when I was a senior in high school, I got into Villanova and my parents had to send the first check. And I turned to my dad and said, I have to pick a major. And they said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I don't know. I'm 17. I have no clue. He said, well, I'll put down business. Because that's what he was. He was a businessman. So that's what I studied. And I was good. I finished near the top of my class. I had, you know, almost a 4.0 and magna cum laude, all that stuff. And I got this great job uh, on Madison Avenue. And I had the fancy suits and the polished shoes. And I had this wonderful studio apartment with a patio, and it was off of Park Avenue, and I had a car, and you know, I had it all made. And it's a funny thing. A friend of my cousins had graduated from a different college. She was working at this place, Covenant House, which is in Times Square, working with homeless and runaway kids. And she said to me, you know, we could use some volunteer help here. So I started to go there one night a week on Tuesdays. Times Square today is really nice. It's like Disney, Hard Rock Cafe. It was not like that in 1980-81. In fact, that was the year Rolling Stone magazine declared it the sleaziest block in America. It was the center of prostitution, pornography, violence, drugs. As my brother said recently, in the 1980s, you ran through Times Square. So that's what I would do. Instead of going to my Park Avenue apartment, I would run through Times Square, take a different subway. I'd duck into Covenant House. I'd change into jeans and a T-shirt. And I would work with the kids, play basketball with them, hand out brownies, hand out snacks. And I began to realize after doing this for a few months, I started to look forward. It wasn't a chore. It was something I started to look forward to doing, you know? Like, I thought, this is really what I'm enjoying. And then I remember being in this meeting with some, I was in this management training program. We were supposed to be the future leaders of this multi-billion dollar corporation. And the senior vice president got us in a room and I can't remember what the numbers were. I'll pick 30 billion. Our net assets are 30 billion and we need to get to 40 billion by the end of the decade. And that's what you all have to dedicate yourselves to. You all have to work towards. And I remember thinking, that's not my goal. 
I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's evil or immoral, but that is not what I want to dedicate my life to. What I want to dedicate my life to is the work that they're doing up at Covenant House, helping homeless and at-risk kids get off the street. So I quit my job. I gave all the suits to Goodwill. Somebody got my car. I think it was one of my brothers. And I literally went from walking down Madison Avenue on a Friday in a three-piece suit to the following Monday, jeans and sneakers, and I'm in the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous parts of New York City working with homeless youth. And I live there. They had a program there where you could live at Covenant House right there in Times Square. I didn't even have an apartment. I had a room across from a crack house and a strip club, and I made $12 a week. So it was literally this rapid shift. And everybody at the time thought, well, let's see if you... You'll get it out of your system. Well, it's 39 years later, and it's still in my system. <laughs> I don't make $12 a week anymore, but I, I never really look back from doing that type of work. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've never regretted it. There's so much to unpack there. And so what I, what I think would be really curious to kind of better understand is what was the attraction of serving these young kids? I mean, when people hear your story of essentially fulfilling this idea of the American dream, like you've self-actualized in terms of having the corporate job, right? I mean, that's what many people go to school to do. And quite literally in the course of a meeting, you decided to give all that up. What was it that made you reject this life that was pretty much the thing that you had been working for and accept this life that quite literally is the opposite of the one that you were born into and that you worked for. What was the attraction to it? I think part of it was religious and spiritual. You know, I got out of college and everything was lined up for me. You know, it was quite easy. The path was right there. And I really kind of felt empty, you know, after college, you know, I had always gone to church on Sunday, but I was usually hung over when I was going. <laughs> from partying the night before. And, you know, I got out of college and it just felt like, gosh, and almost like I could see my life flashing before me. Like, I'll probably stay here. I'll work for another corporation. I'll make a lot of money, probably meet somebody, probably get married. We'll get a house. We'll get a bigger house. We'll get a boat. And someday I'll die, you know? And there was this sense of like, what was that all about? You know, how did I help improve the world in, in any degree? You know, is that really what it's about? Not to criticize that. A lot of my siblings and friends have chosen that path. And that's that's fine. But I think we all do have a path. And I think the path, I really had this strong sense like I'm called to something different. You know, at Covenant House, they had a if you were thinking of living there full time, you had to spend a week there first just to check it out. And so they could check you out, too. So I remember I thought, well, let me just try this. I'm not really going to do this. Let me I'll, t I'll lie to them at my corporation and say I'm going on vacation. And instead, I'll go to Times Square for a week. And it's still hard for me to say 40 years later what what triggered, you know, but a switch definitely went off during that week. And I remember thinking, like, now I know what I have to do. I have to go back and quit my job and give up my apartment and give away the car and the suits, you know. And people were stunned. My, my own family was stunned. My college friends were stunned, you know. I remember my sister saying to me, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be happy? Everybody wants what you already have. 
Why are you giving it away? But I wasn't happy. I wouldn't have been happy if I'd stayed on that path. I know that. I think I would have been very depressed working for a big corporation, you know? Yeah. I think what's really interesting is just better understanding this idea of language and the words that we use to describe our our notion of reality. And what I mean to say is just in this little segment that you're kind of sharing with us, the idea of happiness, how do we define happiness and how is happiness different from fulfillment and pleasure? And I, I don't think many people actually think about these terms and what they mean and how they kind of step into them and hold them and better understand how they relate to them. And I think what you're kind of describing is everybody's in your life was saying to you, Mark, why can't you be happy? And what you were kind of seeking was probably fulfillment instead. It's so funny you say that because when you first started to go down that path about happiness, the word that came to my mind was what I was seeking was fulfillment. And then you said, you said it twice. The two words that came to mind were fulfillment and joy, you know? And I don't think I was going to feel fulfilled working on Madison Avenue or joy. I might have had, I know I would have had a lot more money. I My younger siblings are all retired now because they did choose that path and they've all done very well. And they're very generous. You know, they support Spectrum where I work. But I don't think I would have felt fulfilled, you know, and I do feel fulfilled, you know. It's a tremendous sense. People asked me the other day, one of our donors, gosh, how do you do this work, Mark? You know, you see some terrible things, people who are homeless, I know a lot of kids have committed suicide, mental illness. I had a staff member get killed by a kid 30 years ago. I've had stitches in my face. And she said, how do you do it? And I said, because, you know, I'm an optimist. I believe this is my path. And I focus on the young people who I still get called. I got a text from a guy today. I was his counselor 39 years ago. The first 20 years I knew him, he was mostly in prison. And now he's married, I'm godfather to his little daughter. He's doing well, and I hear from so many young people, they're not young anymore, who are doing well. And it gives me a great sense of satisfaction to know I had something to do with helping to transform that person's life. That's invaluable. You really can never put a price tag on that. And I think it folds back into the idea of what joy actually is. Joy is not about a self-actualization in terms of what it means for us. Joy is something that is external in terms of what we give. I would love to go down this path with you, Mark, of, of better understanding what in your mind or in your experience kind of helps you better understand how is it these children or these young, these young people fall into this place where they end up before you and asking for help? How does a child even get there? We're expanding to another city in Vermont, and I had a discussion with a man who I'm hoping is going to contribute to help us do it. And he said, How do we, what causes all this? And I said, well, for most of the kids, poverty. They come from poverty, you know, highly dysfunctional families. It's not uncommon to hear at all that the child, teenager, either doesn't know their dad or didn't, never met their dad, you know, or their mother is abusing substances, you know, or has severe mental health difficulties. And then the youth sometimes gets involved in drugs themselves, drops. So it becomes this stew of poverty, mental health, substance abuse disorder, you know, domestic violence, you know, it's all in there, you know. That being said, some of the wealthiest families in Vermont come knocking on our door, you know. 
there are families who donate literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to us because they had a daughter or they had a son, you know, who was suffering from substance abuse disorder, was suffering from mental health and literally ended up on the streets. And they sent them here, they sent them there, and the youth came to Spectrum, and now they're doing great. So mental illness, substance abuse disorder can strike any family. I'm not shocked anymore. I used to be. You know, families that I helped coach Little League, you know, I helped coach soccer, and, you know, they'll call me. My son is 16, 17, 18, and, you know, I, I can't get him to go to school. He's running with a rough crowd. He's using drugs every day. He's dropped out of college. You know, I hear those stories. So it hits all demographics. But I would say most of the youth who come to us, it's that mix of poverty, family dysfunction, substance abuse, mental health disorders all together, which is why we call ourselves Spectrum. We have mental health counselors. We have job developers. We have people who will get kids back into school. You know, we provide the full medical, psychiatric. We provide the full spectrum of care because if unless you're addressing every one of those dimensions, your chances of really helping the person to move forward are really diminished. Given your description of the types of people that come in, whether they're, they fall on the bottom rung in terms of the socioeconomic ladder or on the higher rung, what exactly is the thread then? Is it children not being loved the way they need to be loved? Is it not being seen by their parents? How much of it has to do with their childhood in terms of early development? I mean, help us understand what is the string that kind of ties all this together? I'm going to answer with a story because I'm a storyteller. We had a gathering of legislators a couple of years ago and they came into our drop-in center at night and our kids were there. And one of the legislators said, how many of you kids, uh, you know, it was like two degrees out. How many of you kids know someone out there tonight who's homeless? About half the kids raised their hand. How many of you kids have, even if one night been homeless yourself, every hand went up. Where do you kids sleep at night? You know, so they told them parking garages, empty train cars, park benches. So a different legislator says, hey, if you kids could turn the clock back five or 10 years, what choices would you make differently so that you're not in this situation now? So a young man next to her goes, I'll go first. 10 years ago, I was seven years old. I was living in the Northeast Kingdom. My parents were both alcoholics. Not the type that each would have a martini and quietly go to bed. They would each drink a fifth of vodka and beat the living hell out of each other and the living hell out of us, the kids, every night. So, you know, there really wasn't much I could do. Woman next to him, young woman goes, yeah, I'll go next. 10 years ago, I was eight. My father was a heroin addict. He died in prison of an overdose. My mother was a heroin addict too. I remember the police coming and, you know, breaking down the front door of our house, going to visit my mother in prison. So eventually I too became a drug addict. And when I got out of uh, rehab, I knew if I went back to my hometown, I'd be right back using. But someone told me about Spectrum. So I've been here and I've been clean. So the next boy goes, my parents got divorced when I was little. My father had custody of me when I was five. When I was 15, I told him I was gay and he kicked me out of the house. And I've been homeless ever since. The legislators looked like stunned, you know? At the end of that night, everybody went around and knew and there was one young woman, and I know her now, she's on our board of directors now, really proud of her, a college graduate. She was homeless at the time. She's sitting on the couch, hasn't said a word. 
And finally, she says, I know that when you legislators look at us, you're probably thinking, oh, these are kids who are running away just for the sake of running away or rebelling just for the sake of rebelling. But every kid who comes to this door has a different story to tell. And most of those stories are quite tragic. Yeah, trauma and the idea of an event being traumatic is one thing. But what's interesting is that trauma exists within the person, right? So there's the traumatic event that exists externally, but then the trauma resides within. And so people that can't deal with the trauma look for the escape, right? They either are physically running or they're trying to escape via substance abuse or, or any substance whatsoever. And so how do you then kind of, in the work that you do, work with that? What do you do to kind of have people confront their own demons? Because that's really the path to healing. It's, it's about um, reconnecting with oneself. How does that kind of play out in the work that you do? How do you do that? I agree. The trauma, they do carry the trauma within them. You know, we talk a lot about trauma-informed space. We just redesigned our drop-in center and we said it's got to be trauma-informed, you know, right down to the colors, the couches, how it's laid out, you know. So for us, it starts at basic needs, you know. How do you, people like that who are hungry, can we feed them nice food? And can we even feed them nutritious? So you saw the very, very basic level, right? They need clothing, great, we'll get them clothing, you know? They need medical care for physical, we have a clinic right in our building. But then it grows from there. And it, we do have licensed, trained mental health counselors. We train all our staff in something called EMDR. This is with uh, using eye motion. We sent everybody to Pennsylvania to be trained in that. And it's one way of many trying to get at the, the trauma that lies within these young people and help them to talk about that trauma and get at what is underneath there. But none of it, ha you're right, none of it happens fast. It takes time, it takes staff who are very, very caring, very accepting, knowing these kids are gonna make mistakes, knowing they're gonna relapse, knowing that they're gonna act out at times, and yet somehow still being able to hang in there with them. Now that doesn't mean we don't have limits, it doesn't mean we don't have structure, we have rules, right? It can't be chaos. Nobody heals when it's a chaotic environment. I really think it's that combined approach of using a caring space with very caring people. Kids who live with us can stay for as long as three years. I've worked at other shelters where it's like 30 days and you gotta go. And I don't think that's effective at all. You're not gonna undo 18, 19, 20 years of trauma in 30 days, you know? It's gonna take time. And at Spectrum, if you're living with us, you can literally stay. Most kids stay about a year and a half to two years. You could stay for three. But during that time, we're helping you with school, with work, and working with trained therapists who, who really are trained in how do we get at people's trauma and help them to some kind of resolution so it's not, it's not destroying their lives. Because you're right. So that's what I believe is behind a lot of addiction. It's self-medication. They're using these substances because they just can't deal with the, the horrible feelings that exist within them. Yeah, there's so much that we could talk about based on what you just shared. And, and, you know, for me, like the thing that's surfacing right now is how is it that the richest country in the world quite literally is choosing to not make this a priority, right? Like the mental health 
status and situation is becoming, in some sense, unbearable. How else can we explain suicide rates in America? To the extent in which they exist, how is this even a thing? Countries that have so much uncertainty, like I'm talking absolute uncertainty where they can't even think about the concept of tomorrow, they're not committing suicide. So I'm wondering what it is about American society. There's the violence. There's this idea of not being able to understand where your next meal is going to come from. But I'm wondering if there's a layer that's specific to American culture that we're not able to, that we're not having a conversation about. I'm just kind of curious to know if you, you know, what you think about that. I don't know. It's funny. I remember working, I was in a really rough part of Brooklyn years ago and I had met a priest and he was in a parish there and he had just come back from, I don't know, where it's Chile or something as a missionary. And I said, wow, there's so much poverty in that country. It must have been so much worse. And he said, no, it's so much worse here. I said, what do you mean? And he said, because they have material poverty down there. We have emotional and spiritual poverty here. Wow, I'll never, we're talking like 30 years ago, he said that to me. And I still remember it, talking to him on the front steps of this church, you know. And I've often thought of that. We do in America, you know. We have real spiritual poverty and real emotional poverty. And I think you're right. I think that's what we've got to look at. And you're right, the suicide rate is really high, you know. So you look at that and violent in the mental health system, just yesterday, tragedy in Philadelphia, right? The police shot and killed a mentally ill man who was wielding a knife, you know? And his own mother was there and was yelling, he's mentally ill, he's mentally ill. I mean, I emailed somebody an hour ago, the failures in our, our underfunded mental health system, we see it every day. You go to a prison today. My wife does a ton of volunteer work in the prison. You will see mental illness right there. We've, we've made mental illness a crime. You know, so many of the people suffering in our prisons really suffer from mental illness. Again, I don't want to be negative, think it's all gloom and doom, but I do think we know what to do. I think we know what the solutions are. It's do we have the political will, you know, to actually do these things so that we can improve things. We can improve the livelihoods of so many people in this country. You, you started the conversation by saying that you're a very optimistic person. And so as somebody who works with young people who share their stories about just so much heartbreak, how is it that you absorb these stories? Do they live in you? And then as a result, what do you do with them? And how are you able to stay optimistic? How does that all work for you? I don't know. Like, I'm thinking of a young man who came to Spectrum homeless, really in bad shape. He was like 19. And I bonded with him a little bit, you know. And one day, uh, he left Spectrum, had his own apartment. He had a minimum wage job at McDonald's. And then I knew he liked cars, and I took him aside. And I said, you're never going to do well or get ahead working at fast food. But he liked fixing cars. I said, why don't we go look at the technical college? Let's go take a look. So I took an afternoon off. I drove him to see the college. We saw the tech program. And then I'll never forget, I dropped him off at his apartment. And as he was getting out of the car, he said to me, thanks for doing this. I'm not used to nice people doing nice things like this for me. 
I was like, all I did was take an afternoon to go look at a college, you know? I thought, wow, he's not used to people doing nice things for him. If I went into our drop-in center and said, hey, how many of you kids are used to people doing nice? I don't think a lot of hands would go up, you know? But anyway, fast forward, he did go to college. He had nowhere to go in between semesters. He lived with me and my wife for a little bit. Not only did he graduate, he was named commencement speaker. And I took him to breakfast a week before graduation. And again, he says these things getting out of the car. And he turns to me and say, I'm graduating next week. Not only am I the first male in my family to go to college, I'm the first male not to be in prison. My father stole cars for a living. My grandfather killed a man. My brother's in a maximum security facility now, and I'm graduating from college. And he did, and he's doing great. I still hear from him, I get texts from him. He has a great job, but those are the kinds of things that I hold on to. Because when I first met him, I don't, I don't think you would have, you know, thought, oh, this guy's gonna, you know, but it was, not, it was me, but it was many, many other, that's gonna, there's no one person. You know, when I ask kids, gee, you're doing so well. How'd you get here? What was your success? They'll never say it was this one person. It was this person helped me do this. This person helped me do that. This per- you know, it's like, it's that thing about it takes a village, right? One person can make a difference, but if you can evolve more and more people, that's when I really find we catapult people ahead. And that's the kind of thing, those stories, they're not just stories, they're really true, uh, are what keep me motivated. Yeah, I think that's really important to always remember that it's always the smallest acts of kindness that can bring light into the darkness in one's heart and one's life. And so that's something that I think, you know, if anything, people should remember that on a daily basis because, you know, we all suffer from tragedies and we're all fighting demons that nobody else has any idea about. And it's this thing that, you know, once you look inward deep enough and long enough and you're able to confront the demons that are within, you then have the strength to essentially be of service. And I think that's why the work that you do is quite remarkable and foundational for being the light in the darkness for others. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that's what it, what it takes, you know? And, and you're right. Like people say to me, what can I do? Well, one of the things we do, I'm, I say... We have a mentoring. We ask people to be mentors to kids, you know? So somebody will say, I want to be a mentor. I have spare time. I'm like, great. We try and match somebody who likes fishing, an adult with a kid who might want to fish, you know? And it's frequently kids who are growing up in single parent families. So it may be a mother calls and says, you know, my 14 year old son, uh, his dad is missing and uh, he's starting to cut school and he's smoking pot every day. I don't know what to do. So we find, we'll find an adult, you know, and maybe they fish together at first. That's it. Once a week they fish. But then a month later, now they're going out to lunch together. And a month after that, he's helping the kids study for the SAT. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's funny. I, I tell people, I lure them in. It's just, it's just once a week, one year commitment. That's it. Well, many of these mentors have, you know, gone up for six, seven, eight, nine years. And they're even friends as adults, you know. But again, that makes his, I've seen unbelievable transformations in young people who are headed down a pretty scary, dangerous path before. But it was the attention of a mentor who, who was one of the things. That's not the only thing, but that, that can make a big difference. 
Yeah, it's fundamentally about being in a place where somebody sees you for the genuine person who you are and accepts you. And in that process, that connection allows for you to be loved. And what I'm understanding about the kind of work that you're involved in and what I'm noticing about you know the traumas that people face is that they're unable to be authentic for who they are. And so they try to be somebody else. And in that process, they lose themselves. And in the process, they lose the love of the people that they want and they're not able to be seen. And then they're down this spiral. They're down this, this path of self-destruction. And so it's really important for people to allow others to be seen, to include yourself, because that's really where we, we reconnect with who we were as children. I kind of understand it to be the love that we have for our childhood self. Correct. Well, it's funny. One of my staff said this 20 years ago. He said, you know how when you and I are walking in a tough neighborhood, a rough neighborhood, and we put this persona on, you know, like, don't mess with me. He goes, these kids wear that all the time. That's their permanent persona. They've been so hurt and so damaged, they permanently have this don't mess with me attitude. And it's a shield, it's fake, it's phone, you know? And that really lit the light bulb off me like, wow, can you imagine walking around all the time like that? Not showing any openness, not showing any vulnerability. And a different a professor who trained me from Columbia said, it's our job to somehow drill through that shield. They're wearing this armor. It's somehow through unconditional love and acceptance and connection and giving people in the multiple tiers that we drill through that armor to get to the person underneath and connect with them because they need that more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all right. That's super interesting. So as we kind of wrap up here, Mark, I'd like to ask all my guests one final question, and it's this. What's your message for the world? What is my message for the world? My message for the world would be, you know, right now we're living in really crazy times with COVID. But, you know, there have been many, many other crazy times in world history and American history. And there's a, uh, a Catholic. She's not a saint. She's like a wisdom teacher from the 14th century, Julian of Norwich. And uh, her quote that's always used is, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And she lived in the middle of the plague, you know, like the Black Death in Europe. And uh, all shall be well, you know, even in this country and even in, in, uh, in the world. And that's also the message I have for young people. Things are going to be well. We need to persevere. We need to believe in each other. We need to support each other. We need to get beyond the cynicism and the constant carping and criticizing each other and really learn to believe in each other and to believe that there are good people. There are many good people in the world, people of light, people of healing, who can help restore individual souls and who can help restore society to really be the best kind of society and planet that we can be. That's my message for the world. Mark, that's wonderful. Thank you for the work that you do, my friend, and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you for interviewing me. I immensely enjoyed this. I'm so glad we were connected with each other. Thank you. Likewise. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. 
digital marketing by Catherine Ahn, artwork by Mashida Hadi, and theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.